encourage one another to have a good time of fellowship. Seated. Who doesn't like a good story? We need facts. Facts are important. But there is a reason that children don't say, tell me some facts. Oh, they want a story. For the most part, we tolerate discourse, but we attend to story. Stories entertain, they inform, they involve, they motivate, they authenticate. Stories mirror existence, and nothing is so, is so attractive and compelling as a good story. And so Jesus, the master teacher, often taught in parables. In fact, 35% of his teaching in the Gospels are delivered through these stories. I'm doubtful that you can list all 58 parables of Christ. But if you began to try, which ones would be at the top of your list? Which parable of Jesus do you think is the most popular, the most memorable, perhaps the most influential? And as we consider that, I think for most of us, the parable of the prodigal son would come to our mind very quickly. It has been called by some as the greatest short story in the world. And along with the Good Samaritan, this is the most influential and the most loved of all the parables. It's been painted by a host of artists, most notably Rembrandt. It's been made the theme of Shakespearean plays. It's been set to music. It's been made the subject of movies. I would guess that most of you have heard or seen this story in some form. It's important to remember that parables are a unique genre of Scripture, and it's helpful to see them, I think, as fictitious sayings picturing truth. Or to adopt the words of a modern poet, parables are imaginary gardens with real toads in them. Parables are usually brief, and they're always engaging. In an indirect, through-the-back-door sort of way, parables confront what we think is reality, causing us to see what we would not otherwise see. For a parable's ultimate aim is to awaken insight, to stimulate the conscience, and to move to action. Well, in the parable before us this morning, we see three main characters, all of whom are a significant part of the story. And so rather than the prodigal son, really a more fitting title would be the compassionate father and his two lost sons. I invite you to Luke 15. Luke chapter 15 where we see the parable of the compassionate father and the two lost sons. Please follow along as I read Luke 15, verses 11 through 32. Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, 
Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. He said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat, and I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Well, as we step into this parable, it's important to consider the audience that Jesus had when he told it. And when we see that in the first three verses of this chapter, we see that there were tax collectors, there were sinners, and there were Pharisees who were there as Jesus was telling this story. Tax collectors were the toll collectors. They were the Jewish middlemen, middlemen who worked for Rome. They would charge more than they needed to, and they'd keep the profits for themselves. The sinners were the most notorious riffraff of society. These involved, they were involved in serious and immoral behavior, prostitutes, thieves, drunkards. And the Pharisees were the moral men. On the outside, they did exactly what was expected of them. They looked really, really good, and they were highly respected. Well, after telling a parable about a lost sheep and a lost coin, both of which were found leading to great rejoicing, Jesus tells this longer and more detailed parable about two lost brothers. And he was intending for his audience to see themselves in one of them. 
then we too, all of us here this morning, we must see ourselves in one of these two brothers. The younger brother probably was in his teens, was seeking fulfillment and happiness through self-discovery. I'm going to do what I want. Probably identified closely by the publicans and sinners. The older brother was seeking fulfillment fulfillment and happiness through moral conformity. I'm not going to do what I want, but what tradition and what community want. This was the Pharisees. Both of these brothers were lost. It just looked different. The younger was licentious. The older was legalistic. Now, there are lots of points that could be made from this parable, but we must strive to identify the main point or the main points that Jesus was making. And the question then is this, what was the purpose? What was his purpose in telling this story? And I think there's two main points. Two main points Jesus had in mind. First, is that we must know the compassion and extravagant love of the Father. And then a second point is that we must respond with joy. We must respond with joy. We're going to focus on the first point this morning. And Lord willing, next week we'll focus on the second. So as our story begins, we meet the lost younger brother. In the initial scene, if we could paint some scenes through this parable. The initial scene that we see is that of an empty bedroom. He'd had enough of home. He wanted to be his own man, be his own boss. As the poet Kipling identifies his thoughts, my father glooms and advises me. My brother sulks and despises me. My mother, my mother catechizes me till I want to go out and swear. So he goes to his father and asks for his inheritance in advance, which in those days would have been one-third of everything. This request was odd. It was highly unusual, and it would have been seen as deplorable. In effect, he wished his father was dead. And some go so far as to say that he should have been beaten just for asking for this. He was essentially saying that he wants his father's things, but not his father. His relationship to the father has been a means to the end of enjoying his wealth. And now he's weary of that relationship. He wants out. So the father complies and divided up his property And the Greek word for property in verse 12 is usually translated life. For those resources were the father's means of maintaining his life, especially in older age. So really, he's asking his father to tear his life apart. The boy may not have literally wished his father dead, but his actions show that he did not really care for his father, nor did he desire a relationship with him. Even with the division of goods, the younger son would have still had the responsibility to help care for his father. 
a responsibility he ignores by leaving. So in the words of a poem, which I'll be referring to throughout this sermon, the story begins with a boy gone bad. Faces in the audience light up. The boy takes full advantage of his father, an ancient kindly man. He wants the inheritance, everything. Faces grimace. An upstart someone says, horsewhip him, teach him some manners. Some young men smile, but they all wait, eyes fixed on the face of Jesus. The father lets him go after giving everything, the whole inheritance, the gold, the silver, the favored horse, the treasured cloak, the ring. Faces show surprise. His father's a fool, someone whispers. The son's a cheat. But they bend forward to hear. We now enter the second scene. The second scene, which we'll call a lonely hotel room. Probably a room that was dingy, dirty, smelly, perhaps even infested with rats, cockroaches. Oh, it took the sun some time to get there. Initially, he was living in luxury. He could pretty much buy anything. And he enjoyed his newfound popularity. Oh, the prodigal life was great. But not for long. Jesus doesn't give us here any details as to how the prodigal spent his money, other than it went towards reckless living, which, which simply means that he was not thinking or at all concerned that he was using up all his resources. Did months or years pass before his high living had to be scaled down? Did his funds evaporate in a rush, or did he ration sin on a budget? It doesn't really matter, because either way, it all ran out. There he was, trying to sleep in his lonely hotel room with absolutely nothing. He spends it all on prostitutes, wine, gambling, the best hotels, loose living. An old man looks down at his friends and winks. He should have invested it, he says. That's the wise way. But this one's a fool, the other says. Heads nod in agreement. The third scene is that of a pigsty. As they say, when it rains, it pours. And just as he ran out of money, there was a famine which would have hurt the economy, making it really hard to find work. So out of sheer desperation, he hired himself to a Gentile pig farmer. Literally in the text, it's the idea that he glued himself to a Gentile as a servant, which would have been horribly humiliating for any Jew. But it gets worse. He was sent to work with pigs. This was utterly repulsive for Jews because swine were the most unclean of any animal. I am quite sure that he never imagined being in the pigsty. 
It never crossed his mind that he would be longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and that no one would give him anything. I mean, just a short time before, everyone loved him. But now no one would even give him a husk to chew on. He had sought pleasure, but now he was miserable. He sought freedom, and he thought he found it. But now he is in virtual slavery. What this younger son here was realizing is that sin lies about its benefits. Sin tells you it will bring certain pleasures, and it does, but they don't last. Sin always makes promises, but it never fulfills them for long. C.S. Lewis speculates that Satan hates giving sinners pleasure because he knows in its true and healthy sense pleasure is only produced by God. And so Satan gives sinners only as much pleasure as is necessary to enslave them to the sin. And once they're enslaved, the pleasure can be dispensed with and soon they're left with only the sin itself. The wise old demon tells his nephew Wormwood that the formula is an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. The pleasure goes down while the misery goes up. Soon the boy hits bottom, nothing left. He ends up slopping pigs, faces flinch, stunned, but some smile. He got what he deserved, an old man says. This is a good story. It's easy to imagine how the boy's, boy's mind went to home and how things really weren't bad, as bad at home as he thought they were. His father's servants were better off than he was. So he decided to go back, confess his sin, and ask his father to apprentice him to one of his hired men so he could learn a trade, earn a wage, and pay off his debt. See, the rabbis at that time taught that if you violated the community standards, a mere apology was not enough. You had to also make restitution. So he rehearsed his speech in the pig pen, and when he felt he was ready for the confrontation, he gathered up his stuff, which didn't take very long, and he headed for home. But then the boy remembers home, the feast, the plenty, the laughter. He sits and weeps, his head in his hands. He decides to return home and ask for a bed in the barn. Someone laughs. A twist, he says. Faces show intrigue. The boy comes home, hands gritty, legs scarred. 
He is penniless, ragged, wasted, a scarecrow. Listeners are laughing now. Revenge, they think. The disowning. But no. We see now the final and the climactic scene of this parable. And that is the scene of a compassionate father. The compassionate father. For however long it had been, the father patiently endured a tremendous loss of honor as well as the pain of rejected love. Now, ordinarily, when our love is rejected, we get angry. We can tend to get bitter. We can retaliate and do whatever we can to diminish our affections for the rejecting person so that we won't hurt as much. But not this father. This father maintains his love for his son, and he bears the agony. He saw his son in the distance. Whether or not that means he was intentionally looking for him every day, you know, out on the front porch with his newspaper and coffee and scanning the horizon, whether or not that's what it means, we don't know. But what we do know is that when he saw him, he ran out to meet him. Now, as a general rule, distinguished distinguished Middle Eastern patriarchs did not run. Oh, children might run. Women might run. It was even likely possible that young men might run. But no older, self-respecting male head of an estate would have, it, would have disgraced himself by the undignified action of pulling up his robe, tucking it into his belt, exposing his legs, and running after his son. It was unheard of. This would have surely shocked the younger brother. When his father came, he he tried to roll out his business plan for restitution, but the father interrupts him, not only ignoring his rehearsal speech, but contradicting it. Bring the best robe and put it on him. This robe would have been the father's robe, which was an unmistakable sign of restored standing within the family. In the words of Keller, the father is saying, I am not going to wait until you've paid off your debt. I'm not going to wait until you've duly groveled. You are not going to earn your way back into the family. I am simply going to take you back. I will cover your nakedness, poverty, and rags with the robes of my office and honor. The father also told the servants to put a ring on his finger and give him shoes and kill the fatted calf for an epic celebration. In that society, most meals did not include meat. 
It was an expensive delicacy, often reserved for special occasions and parties. And there was no meat that was more expensive than the fatted calf. Such a feast would only have happened on the rarest of occasions. And most likely, the entire village would have been invited to celebrate. The old man sees him on the road from his chair on the porch where he has waited patiently each day. He recognizes the walk, the long hair, the shoulders. He jumps up and stumbles out to him, his heart thumping, his eyes wet. He runs to the boy while the boy stands there, his head down. The old man gathers him into his arms and he holds him long, so long, and he weeps. Faces are stern now, their eyes slit. This father's a fool, they murmur, but they still wait. The boy begins his speech, but the old man has suddenly gone deaf. He throws a cloak over the boy's rags, pulls off his last and best ring, slides it onto the boy's finger, and begins calling for servants. Kill the fatted calf, he shouts. We'll have a feast. Faces are hard now. Many shake their heads. When we understand this final scene, when we understand the scene of the compassionate father, we realize that this parable could just as well have been called the parable of the prodigal God. You see, the word prodigal doesn't mean wayward. It means lavishly abundant, extremely generous, giving or yielding profusely. Tozer says it so well, because God is self-existent, his love has no beginning. Because he is eternal, his love can have no end. Because he is infinite, it has no limit. Because he is holy, it is the quintessence of spotless purity. And because he is immense, his love is an incomprehensibly vast, bottomless, shoreless sea. Love like this can pardon and restore any in every kind of sin. It does not matter who you are or what you've done. There is no evil that the Father's love cannot pardon, and there is no sin that is a match for His grace. Does this mean that God is a God of universal love? who unconditionally accepts everyone, no matter what? The answer to that is no. No, this story doesn't tell everything. You see, there is someone missing from this parable. And it's the one who is telling the parable. Jesus Christ. Although his love is great, God cannot unconditionally accept everyone because he is also perfectly just. 
And so sin against him cannot be unpunished. And the place where God's love and his justice come together is on the cross, where Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, died in the place of sinners. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Isaiah 53.5, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. 2 Corinthians 5.17, For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, we see this amazing love of the Father on display. And it is here that we see how it is that all of our sins, past, present, and future, can be forgiven. I wonder this morning, have you ever understood this good news? Where do you stand in light of this story? Like the younger brother, we too are all by nature separated from God. We're all separated from God, who is our Father. We too, just like this younger son, have deliberately left our Father's house. We have broken our attachment with God. And whenever this happens, we will always attach ourselves to other things. And we become slaves to our attachments to the things that we placed over God. We become slaves to our idols. Maybe drugs. Maybe alcohol. Illicit sex. Perhaps a job. Or a spouse. Or a hobby. Or a cabin on the lake. Or the internet. Or an iPhone can be anything. As Piper said, the attachment may be crude or it may be refined. But in the end, it will send us to the swine troughs, either in this life or the life to come. So this is really all of us. This is all of us. And the real question then is whether or not we've uttered the first phrase of the repentant sinner. I will arise and go to my Father. Have you come to your senses? I don't suspect you're working in a pigsty as messy as your desk or cubicle might be. But 
But a pigsty can be a $500,000 house, a really, really nice car. It can be a job and a life that looks really, really good to everybody. But if, like the younger brother, you don't know where to turn and you don't know what to do, then look up the road. Look up the road and see the compassion of the Father. See and realize that it is God's kindness that leads you to repentance. I mean, it would have certainly been possible for the lost son there in the pigsty to only feel bad about how everything had turned out. He could have thought, yeah, I feel really bad about my life. Oh, there's, I regret that. There's things I don't like. But I can do this. I can fix, fix this. I'll just make more positive decisions and begin a new journey of self-reformation. And then he could have proceeded to make all kinds of different resolutions. Like he could start drawing from the positive and the good within himself. Or, or start saving his money rather than spend it. He could have resolved to start making better friends who would be a more positive influence on his life. Or just simply resolve to change his set of circumstances for another set of circumstances. But that's not what he thought. That's not what he does. One commentator said, the prodigal went back to the father, not primarily because he was tormented by a guilty conscience, but because he was drawn by the hope of mercy. Drawn by the hope of mercy. Knowing this, knowing that his greatest need was mercy, he goes to his father without any excuses. I mean, he offers nothing in his defense. I have sinned. I'm not worthy. That was it. I have sinned. I'm not worthy. Have you ever come to God like that? Have you ever come to God like that? I'm not asking if you've had a religious experience or if you prayed a prayer when you were a kid. I'm not asking you if you're interested in getting a little bit of purpose in your life or if you want to find a way to put all the pieces together so you can be more happy. I'm asking if you've ever come to God like the younger son. I have sinned. I am not worthy. And I wonder, is, is that your attitude now? 
Does this spirit of the younger son characterize your life? Because we must realize that just like faith, repentance is not a one and done. In the words of Packer, repentance means turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of your God. And as our knowledge grows at these three points, so our practice of repentance has to be enlarged. We, we have to conclude that truly repentant sinners never stop repenting. A saved sinner is a repenting sinner. I think we probably all realize pretty clearly that the message we hear in our world today is very different than what we see here in this story. I mean, the gospel according to Oprah says that your greatest problem is outside of you and the solution lies within you. We see here that's not the case. The reality is that our greatest problem is within us. It's our sin. And the only solution lies outside of us in Jesus Christ. For it is He who takes our rags on Himself. Who else can blot out our past and remove our guilt? Who else can pardon us and cleanse us and relieve us? Who else can remove our sin as far as the east is from the west? Who else can drown our sin in the sea of His forgetfulness? Who else can make all things new, giving us a new heart, a new beginning, new meaning, new purpose? As our poem concludes, someone said, nothing has gone right in this story. They stalk off. A bad story, one says. Stupid, says another. Definitely not one of his best. But some from the crowd linger. A prostitute. A tax collector. A thief a liar. They glance at Jesus furtively and wait. Then they approach slyly, slowly. And one by one, they fall at his feet and weep. They weep for joy. Father, your love for us is so deep. Your love is vast beyond all measure. 
You have given your only Son to make us wretched, vile, helpless worms your treasure. We're humbled to realize we don't comprehend the depth of your love. But we fall on our knees and thank you for it. Thank you for your mercy and your grace. And Father, may we respond as the younger son did. Help us to see our sin and help us to see your grace. I pray for each one that's here, for anyone that's here who has not yet seen themselves, not yet come to their senses. Give them, Father, the grace to say, I've sinned and I'm not worthy. And for all of us, Father, may we continue to be marked by this Spirit, affected by our sin and amazed by your love. Do this work, we pray through Christ. Amen.